Hola, hola, chulas. Hi there. We are experts in intuitive eating for on-again, off-again chronic dieters, and we are here to help you take the guilt and stress out of eating so you can become the first in your family to break the diet cycle, just like we are in our families. We want you to be who you are without food guilt. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, No More Guilt for Melissa and Your Latina Nutritionist for Delina. Are you ready? Let's break the diet cycle. Hey, it's me, Melissa. Before we start, I want to let you know that this episode is brought to you by No More Guilt with Melissa Landry. What you are about to listen to is not a professional coaching or counseling session. Each episode is a one-time conversation meant for educational purposes. Look, we're dietitians, but we're not your dietitian. Remember that podcasts don't constitute treatment. If you have concerns about your dieting behaviors, seek out guidance from a medical or mental health professional. And if you're looking for the process, support, and focus you need to live life without food guilt, apply for a coaching program from today's sponsor, me. I'm currently enrolling clients into one-to-one programs, group programs, and I recently added a do-it-yourself format, the Ex-Dieter's Guide to No More Guilt. Apply for a program at melissalandrynutrition.com. I hope to meet you soon. One more thing, Sula. We know how hard you are working to break the diet cycle out there. We appreciate that work because we know every single one of you who breaks the diet cycle is making our world more inclusive and safe for others to do the same. It's personal. We get it. That's probably why you're listening to a podcast. It's private and at your own pace. That's why if you've ever found benefit from this podcast, we want you to review and rate us. There are more people like you who want the same benefit. Helping our podcast get found by women like you is the best way to help us further our mission to break the diet cycle. We literally couldn't do it without you. Will you review us after you listen to this episode? Thanks, Tula. But what about health? But what about health? But what about health? This is the question we always hear on our pages when we're working with clients. The moment you find food freedom, you get really excited about what that could mean, right? Like not being guilty about food all the time. But pretty shortly after that, the fears start to roll in. And for a lot of people, they can get past maybe some thin ideal they have or aesthetics that they have, but health is a big concern. And of course, right. We all want to live happy lives, to be able to keep up with our family and friends and explore the world. And so we brought in Petrile today, who is an advocate who understands body liberation and works at both individual level, at least that's where she started and at a systemic level to push back on a force called healthism. So without further ado, we're going to explain what healthism is how it might have impacted your individual relationship to food and your body. And we're going to hopefully give you some tangible tips that you can use for yourself and maybe the world around you so we can change the culture that caused it in the first place. Today, we have Trile Hernandez on to talk a little bit about health and why it is important to not see that as something that should dictate your worth. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about how ideas of health can block you in healing your relationship with food. I'm so thrilled to have you as a guest. Would you introduce yourself to our audience? And then we can talk a bit more about this topic. Yes, of course I can. Thank you so much, Melissa. And thank you both for having me on here. I have had the opportunity and the pleasure of listening to podcast episodes before. And thank you for inviting me. And I'm super glad um, that we could have a conversation together today. Us too. So tell us a little bit about your work so we can introduce our listeners to you and and what you're really about. 
Of course, of course. Uh, my name is Petrelli. My pronouns are she and they. I am aware of many hats, I feel. <laughs> I have worked in public health, nutrition, food in some way or another for almost 15 years. I'm dating myself. But, you know, I would consider myself first and foremost, a public advocate. I do a lot of work around policy, policy analysis, policy implementation. I have a background as an educator. I dabble in some activism. I do program and project management around nutrition and health. And I am also the founder of Embody Lib, which is a community and platform that aims to be in solidarity with people of the global maturity as they move towards reclaiming their health and well-being. I have a background in nutrition with a focus on nutrition education, as well as an academic and professional background in cultural anthropology. So I leverage both my anthropology backgrounds, my nutrition degree, um, and my extensive experience in public health. And I work with a variety of stakeholders in the health and wellness and, and educational settings on, you know, basically working with them to move towards weight inclusive and multidimensional frameworks that improve community well-being. So I work very much from an institutional level. So I'm not a coach or a nutritionist. Um, don't, don't really do one-on-one coaching, counseling with clients and patients, like I think maybe other people you've had on your podcast or the work that you do, I really work on a systems institutional level to bring about change that that hopefully make you know the health provider, the healthcare world um, a little bit more inclusive, compassionate, and I think with a lot more integrity for people of diverse backgrounds. I love this. And this is why you are here today, because a lot of what we talk on this podcast, and I think what brings a lot of people into their interest with intuitive eating in this work is like, I, me, 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 I am struggling with this issue in my Mm. life. I am struggling with my relationship with food. My body image is difficult, Mm -hmm. negative. That's important. You know, you people are important. (laughs) Same for you. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so Many times we start there, but little by little, we learn the reason we end up there is the institutional stuff that has impacted us. So that's why we asked you to be on here because one of the things Delina and I are both really passionate about is helping people first and foremost, kind of be one less person that's suffering with this in the world. But then from there, how do we think about these systems that harmed us so that they stop harming people? That would be such a win. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the whole goal with Embody Live, right? And I talked about this a lot when I was first forming the organization that, you know, when us as individuals, we work to dismantle and deconstruct our own internalized oppressive narratives, right, that are largely due to external systems, whether they're rooted in cis-heteropatriarchy, white supremacy, colonialism, other facets of of like systemic oppression, we are better equipped to, to kind of stand up and stand together to confront and address these larger systems of oppression, right? That keep us all collectively marginalized, keep us all collectively oppressed. So starting with the individual, I think is incredibly important, right? Because that's where it starts. Like you have to start recognizing how these systems impact you and and keep you from thriving at your fullest potential, right? And when enough and and when enough of us are free of this, right? I think it makes it easier to come together, to organize and to 
burn down, dismantle, whatever the system that has hurt us and harmed us for so long. We have to get faster at smelling what stinks. You know what I mean? Like uh-huh. I see this, Absolutely. I think, I think about this with, you know, being a woman and thinking about how, what my mom in her generation might've thought was appropriate behavior by a man toward a woman. And what I mm-hmm. think is appropriate oh, yeah. behavior is like probably night and day. And this goes for any intersection you have that just happens to be the one I have. And so it's important we listen to other people's points of views because sometimes we can't smell what stinks when it's not happening to us. So there's so many layers to this. Yeah. And, and I think so many of us, right, have so many pieces of our identity, right, that kind of play into this power dynamic. So no one person's lived experience is just one dimensional, right? Every aspect mm-hmm. of our identity can either be marginalized by this bigger system at hand or benefits from this bigger system at hand, right? So all of us in some way have some sort of power to leverage those aspects of our identity, right, that do benefit from from the system to be able to work to address it, tear it down and build something where all of us thrive, no matter what our different identities are. I think that, you know, something that I always think about, and I think we've talked about this too on the podcast, is that like two truths can be true. Like you you can, like, sometimes we, we get so stuck in black and white thinking that sometimes we can't even see the nuance and a lot of these systemic issues that are keeping us, you know, in like this cult-like control almost. Um, And some people are like, well, you're trying to steal away who I was. Like, I feel like I hear a lot of that when people Mm -hmm. are like pushing back against systemic Mm -hmm. uh, racism and like issues. They're always like, but I grew up this way and there's nothing wrong with how I grew up. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. but it's like, you could have grown up in, in, in this scenario or like, knowing these beliefs to be true to you, but they could also be harmful to other people. And then you now can dismantle that so that we can create a world that is better for everyone. Right. Like when people say like Mm -hmm. skin privilege isn't a thing or like, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. there's just so much. And I'm like, oh, my brain does not work like that. So like for me, it's like really hard to understand when people just can't see the whole picture. I mean, binary thinking, right? Binary thinking does a couple of things. So I talk a lot about binary systems because they are so integral to upholding the power that very few people actually in this world have, right? That's why I say that my goal is to reclaim health and well-being for the global majority, because I don't use the word minority, because in fact, we are not minorities. We are the majority of the people that occupy this earth. And there is a small group of people that are dictating how bodies, how health, how nutrition should look like. So hierarchies, this kind of binary thinking, this or that, this is at the top, this is in the bottom, this is very much an agent of white supremacy. And so looking at issues while, you know, rejecting this binary um, has been incredibly important part of my own body liberation journey, my journey as I explore gender and my sexuality as a queer person, where, you know, thinking in these binaries, yes, to to an extent, they help humans kind of organize information, right? I'm, I'm putting on my anthropologist hat. This helps us, I identify what is safe, what is not. But at the same time, right, because there are so many of us having this collective experience, having these kind of binary systems of thinking, what it does, it just upholds the elite, right? 
like it upholds the power structure. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for bringing that because um, looking at issues with a level of nuance, with a level of complexity that they deserve, I think helps us really get to, to the root of what is the root of what is marginalizing us, right? What is marginalizing the most marginalized? So we can focus on their liberation and then in turn, it frees all of us. Mm. It's, it's interesting to think about this because I think when people hear the term white supremacy, and I'll say this as a white person, mm-hmm. your gut reaction is like, Ooh, oh God, what have I done? Right. There's a lot, mm-hmm. there's a lot of guilt and shame that can come mm-hmm. up within that. Mm-hmm. And my hope today is we has it, have this conversation. We can frame it just like you're saying, truly like there's this, there's a hierarchy that exists. Absolutely. <laughs> whether, Absolutely. whether you've experienced it or not, it is there. <laughs> and it's, and it's very much tied to our history. Right. And, you know, when I say things like white supremacy, almost everybody benefits from, from white supremacy, right. That I identify as a multiracial person of the, of the Puerto Rican diaspora, but half of my ancestry is rooted in white European settlers that came to the Island. Right. And so because of that, my family lineage, right, has benefited from these systems, right? It doesn't mean that because you benefit from white supremacy that you have all of the power in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't mean that, but recognizing the system for what it is allows us to be more thoughtful in how we participate in it, right? And how we can divest it from it in order to create something that all of us can thrive in and can be in community with. So a lot of what I talk about, right, I don't talk about individuals, right? I talk about systems and white supremacy is an ideology. It is a system. It is not a person or group of individuals. I think that's helpful going into this now for any listener that's kind of like, oh no, you know, this is being able to work with those feelings internally empowers you to actually think about what we're meant to talk about today, which is healthism. Mm -hmm. And I want now to talk about healthism as it lives inside of this like white supremacy framework, because the way I always learned about it or thought about it is that folks who are quote healthy and who look what we perceive healthy to look like get certain privileges and advantages in our society. How do you define healthism? What does it mean to you? So I follow a definition that was already defined, right? And so there was this sociologist, his name was um, Robert Crawford, and he established a really great definition in the 1980s. And so he used healthism as a way to critique, right, of how much, especially during the 1980s, right, where we really saw this pivot in the public health sphere, where you saw a higher investment in funding, you saw more national attention was being paid to different chronic diseases like heart disease, diabetes. Towards the end of the 1980s, you saw the emergence of the HIV AIDS epidemic. And then during the beginning of that time, right, is when you really saw the diet industry really, really take off and become super popular. So he was wary of that, right? He he was wary that all this investment in being healthy was actually, right, was, was, was turning into healthy meaning a responsibility to seem healthy to others, right? And so he defined healthism as, quote, the preoccupation with personal health as the primary, 
often the primary focus for the definition of achievement of well-being, a goal which is to be attained primarily through the modification of lifestyle behaviors. And so what healthism, he, he, so his critique was as, as everything that, that was happening in the public health sphere during that time, that health was just really flattened, right? Like it was flattened across entire populations from this kind of dynamic multifaceted issue, right? That, 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 that has many dimensions into something that was just, that just amounted just to just personal responsibility. And so I feel that since that time, right, healthism has really increased and was so prevalent in not only the public health spaces, but you'll see in the health and wellness movements, right, that have emerged from that time period. And now we're, what, 2022, folks are just starting to realize again, oh, crap, we focus all this on personal responsibility, but health outcomes for people haven't really turned out better. So now they're reverting back to, wait, what are what are social determinants of health? And that I think is a way to kind of backtrack on this kind of healthist agenda that has been so prominent in public health spaces and in the health and wellness field for, for, for about 40 years. Yeah. And you know what, that makes me think of like how in the eighties, everything was sugar-free and Mm fat-free and like, this is where all of these, like, kind of like scare public health campaigns that were like super scary started coming Mm -hmm. out. And that's why, like, I I often think about the fact that like, again, public health campaigns just generalize so much again, without looking at the individual. And it's like, everybody should be fat-free. Everybody should be sugar-free. And it's like, really? Like, how does, how does, how does that make sense? And also if we look at the data, <laughs> none of that has done anything for anybody's health. If anything, people yeah, are actually I becoming think it was incredibly reactionary. I think yes, it was an incredibly it reactionary response. The public health sphere, I think be, because there was such a massive investment around that time, people were collecting more data, right? So that's when they started collecting metrics around more, more metrics around things like blood pressure. Yeah. Like A1C levels, weight, BMI, things like that, that really started become becoming more enforced during the seventies, eighties, which I think, you know, laid the groundwork for a lot of these kind of movements you saw in media, in, you know, fitness spaces around, the notion that health was primarily a personal responsibility, that it was a hundred percent in your hands. And that if you didn't uh, meet this definition of health, then you were responsible, then, then, then you were a moral failure, you know, prior to that, there was some investment right around things like meal programs, around things like Medicare, Medicaid, but in the 1980s, which I think coincided a lot with the administration during that time, um, really focused on the issue of health being public responsible or being a personal responsibility and being a means of being more productive to society, which meant that it would have that the country as a whole would have a better economy. More people would be working, more people would be working longer hours. Right. So I think you, you really saw that narrative pushed around that time, which you didn't really see before that. 
That's so interesting. And that's something that when we think about this idea of reclaiming and liberation, mm-hmm. a lot of times you'll see people in our space ask people how they define health. Like yeah. if you're, I think of like uh, athletes, right? Like how they define health is very different the way I define health because their, their end game is their game. Like They want mm-hmm. to be the best for a very short window in their life cycle and achieve that. And so they're yeah. going to make decisions based on that what are your definitions for what's your end game? You're allowed to have a different end game than the one that was presented to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I also, you know, this also prompts me to think I heard you say things like A1C and like blood work. And again, a lot of that, like we have these numbers and some of them have ranges and some of them do not. And I feel like sometimes when we don't have those ranges, people get so stuck. Like I literally had someone tell me yesterday that they are border that they are borderline pre-diabetic. And I was like, how what is does that, that a even thing? mean? I was like, I don't really understand how you can be borderline pre-diabetic because like our blood sugars, like we have blood sugars for a reason. They're a number. And like, also we don't even have an actual definition still. Like doctors still function on like two different definitions for diabetes right yeah. now and for pre-diabetes. So how can someone be borderline pre That is normal blood sugar. <laughs> like that's pre-pre-diabetic. Like, didn't you know, like that's pre pre Yeah. And I think people forget that the Western biomedical model, right? Using these metrics as a measure of health is pretty new like the fifth, the past 50 years or so. And so very much like we see the information is changing. We see that our built environment is changing. So these biometric markers, right. To say that they are and will forever be the gold standard. I don't think that's true because it's still kind of new. We're learning more information about the human body every day medicine, right. It's ever evolving we have greater access, right? We have greater access to information where a lot of these studies that were initially done, right, to establish what the gold standard measurements, they didn't have access to the same diverse populations that that we have now. So this is still, I think it's incredible, right, that, that we have been able to use science to develop these markers that can track health over a period of time. And, and I think that those could be so valuable, but I think at the same time, you need to recognize that there are a lot of shortcomings that are systemic, that are cultural, that are, that, that are environmental, that keep us from saying, oh, this is never going to change, or this is hundred percent how it needs to be for everybody. Right. And coming back to that binary, like we want to like, no, am I good health or am I bad health? Like we want that label. But what we're talking about with these metrics is like, they're as good as they can be for now. Right. And they are data points that are not more or less important than other data points to Absolutely. include your lived experience and how you, you know, experience joy and satisfaction and, and connection in the world around you. And so I think that is something that a lot of our clients work toward. It's not easy because everything that you see in the media, when you go to the doctor's office is going to try to snap you back to that binary. And and I think that's the work is, is developing that inner self-talk or, you know, that connection with your values that helps you navigate it. Cause it's really, really hard. It's really hard. Yeah. And I think, right. Like I talk about this Western kind of medical model of health. This is, this is a medical model, right. That is that is representative of a good size of the population, but we have an entire world of different cultures, of different perspectives on what health is and how health is defined. 
So, you know, one of the examples that I was thinking of is, so I mentioned, right, that I'm from Puerto Rico. There is uh, a significant amount of my ancestry is European settler, but a significant amount of my ancestry is also like indigenous. And, you know, thinking about the way that indigenous peoples in Central South America, the Caribbean, which is a huge part of the Western world, right? The way that they perceive health and the way that their perspectives on health are so drastically different where the Western biomedical model, right? The, uh, they really function with these with these binaries, right? You you either have good you either have good cholesterol, you have bad cholesterol, your your blood sugars are good, bad, etc. A lot of indigenous frameworks around health really talk about balance. They really talk about the balance of your different bodies, let's say, right? That you have a physical body and you have a mental body and you have a spiritual body, right? And it's not about being get bad or good, but it's about insurance that all of those are in balance with each other and are in balance with the world around you, right? Like it's very closely tied to the land. It's very closely tied to nature, so, you know, thinking that these definitions of health only pertain to this, this, and this, I think is super limiting because people of the global, because there are so many examples with people of the global majority that they define and they pursue health very differently. Balance is also not perfection, right? Like, yeah. right. The word balance implies that it will fall out of, <laughs> it will fall out of balance. Like many times when people, that's like the word moderation. I think sometimes right, right. co-opted, it's like not an end point. It's actually a dynamic experience. Exactly. That, that it's that dynamic. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And that's so hard for people. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about a very common refrain that we hear. You can tell me if you've heard this one. When people say, I'm all for body positivity, but what about health? Have you heard this phrase? Yeah, before? of course. So, so what about health? This refrain often holds our clients back in really deepening body acceptance and their intuitive eating work. And I think what we're saying now is like that phrase represents us holding on to the healthism aspects that we might've <laughs> experienced. Like maybe there is more of a, a departure from aesthetics or that type of intersection. So when you hear, but what about health? Why do you think health is framed as an accomplishment? Why do we reward it? Why do people cling on to the health thing as they're going through their journeys? Well, I could sure start off by sharing a little bit with my experience. So a big part of this work that I've done with Embody Lib was started because I was diagnosed with, with an eating disorder in 2017. And when I entered treatment in 2018, I found that my IOP, my intensive outpatient program was really lacking so much in terms of, I think one, <laughs> a proper diagnosis of what my eating disorder was to catering to the different identities that maybe aren't weren't seen or taken into consideration, right? I identify as fat. So it's a, it's a neutral term. I am a queer person of color. I have an extensive background in nutrition, right? So, so I felt that this program just wasn't, while it was a great step into the world of recovery, it was not enough. And part of my whole disordered thinking and behaviors centered around achieving this pinnacle of health right? Whether it was making my body size, like suppressing it as small as possible, 
which is not my natural body size. I'm just not naturally a small person. And also making sure that my, that, that when I went to the doctor, they could say, okay, well, you're not skinny, but at least you're healthy. Right. Meaning and looking back and really reflecting on that because I associated being healthy with validation in a society that would always find some way to marginalize me no matter what, because you see all this information about like Latinx communities have super high rates of type two diabetes or more likely to be, you know, quote unquote obese. You have higher incidences of heart disease, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I knew by walking into doctor's offices because of who I was, they would always have this caveat, right? Like, oh, well, she is one of them. So, and by trying to obsess about being as healthy as possible was my way to cope and was, was my way to say, well, not all of us. Right. And so looking back then it was incredibly disordered and it just showed me how my eating disorder and the way that it manifested was more than just something personal, right? It was definitely as a way for me to respond to bigger factors at play that were systemic. Yeah. And, you know, as, as you're saying that it makes me think of the Cuerpo series that um, our 29 Somos is doing right now. Mm -hmm. And they, they did like a whole series of how, like, this is assimilation for us. Like Mm -hmm. this is literally us assimilating because we want to fit in. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this, and this is something that it's crazy because I literally had a conversation about this morning with, with one of my clients a lot of this is because I feel like also there's so many things that are out of our control in, in, in our Latinx culture. Mm-hmm. Like we've never been in control of our bodies as, uh, as a whole per se, because it's always been somebody telling us what to do. It's attached to like a lot of this purity culture. And so then, then we get here to another country and then everybody looks different from us. I know you and I have had this conversation of like going to school and like being the only one that looked like us and that everybody's mm-hmm. like blonde and blue eyed yeah. and like skinny. And you're yeah. Like, and it's always uh, like, what are you? What are yeah, you? Like, where are, are you from? Yeah. yeah. Or like, I would be told like, you can't be Dominican. You're not dark enough. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, how is this even a thing? And all of this for many is a form of assimilating to mm-hmm. us being thrown into a whole different country, a whole different language, a whole different world. And that assimilation plus a lot of those social determinants is what puts us at risk, right? Is mm-hmm. what's putting us at this 40, you know, statistically speaking, I think I did a whole reel about this the other day. Yeah. I remember 40%. that like where someone just, yeah, that's a completely inaccurate statistic, <laughs> but okay. Yeah. Exactly. Like, you... They said to me, they asked me, they were like, why does 40, why do 40% of the Latino population have diabetes in the United States? I was like, first of all, that 40% of the Latino population does not. And then I couldn't Google it at that point. So like afterwards I went back and then I was like, no, it's a 40% chance. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like 40% of those that are diagnosed with diabetes yeah. are of Latinx Hispanic yeah. background, yeah. which there are so many other factors in the social determinants so of health that cause that that are outside so of yeah. diet yeah. and exercise. Yeah. Yes. And like 20%. And then and then I was looking at and then like the the rates of diagnoses in like Latin America is around 20%. Mm. So again, it's like, doesn't that make you think that maybe it's something wrong in this country? <laughs> 
like the yeah. disparity is that different. So yeah, it's just, it just, oh, it makes me think. I mean, I know we have a lot of these conversations, Melissa and I, and, and me, you. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it just strikes me how anyone who has any idea about another group of people, it serves you to ask yourself, where did I learn that? Where did I hear <laughs> I, that? Like, just yeah. having a curiosity. <laughs> because often, even if your idea is correct, the origin or the, the causality of that information is not what you think it is. Or maybe it's even just out of thin air and <laughs> stoked by bias. Like then we think about those numbers, right? And how sound bites. I mean, Delina and I, we talk about this all the time being on social media. We're both about to pack our suitcases and leave it because more and more our communities, our online communities are demanding 15 second sound bites. And our world is so complicated. And typically when we hear this information, even in a doctor's office, they've got 15 minutes. Everything is rapid, rapid, go, go, go. Mm -hmm. They're trying to give you this massive amount of information very, very quickly. And we don't have time to process and unpack how that makes us feel, what triggers in our past that brings up. And it just means a lot to do these long form podcasts where we can kind of even just scratch the surface on some of this to help you all live a little bit more in that um, complexity than maybe you have in the past. Yeah. And, and to your point, right, about this kind of general sense of urgency of time, we need all this information in, you know, very short periods of time and we need to cram as much information as possible, right? This all leads back to this kind of sense that human beings are supposed to be these sort of machines, right? We're just here to produce and produce and produce and produce and, and really not given the space or time to really set, to really sit back. And so when we think about health, because I do work in the public health setting, the justification for why people need to be as healthy as possible, especially in a country like this, is because there isn't such a need and, and, and there's such a commitment to productivity that if people aren't as productive as possible, then what does that say to you as a good, quote unquote, contributor to society? Just really think about that narrative. Right. And our worth as individuals, our worth and sense of belonging mm -hmm. in our workplaces and our families and our communities all get challenged if we become unhealthy. So that's why we cling on tight because yeah, gosh, yeah. It's, yeah. it's currency. It is. It's currency in, in our world. I see. And you know, you know what this makes me think about just thinking from like a cultural perspective, because y'all, y'all know, this is where brain goes. I'm not an anthropologist, but a part of me wants to go back and learn. I mean, I'm obsessed, but I also think about how like the culture of individualism that is bred here, that, that puts a big emphasis on being healthy to be able to work. Right. As opposed to like in other countries, like when I think about like our Latinx roots and like how we're taught to care for the elder, how mm -hmm. we're taught to once your yeah, parents, it takes a village, yeah, right? It takes a village. Yeah. Yeah. Like once child. your parents reach a certain age, like you're supposed to take care of them. Like that is like, there comes a, t a time in our life cycle where they took care of us. So then now it's our turn to take care of them. And mm -hmm. like, that's something that is like so ingrained in us, you know? And like, one of the running jokes is like, oh, you know, when people get older, it's like, I hope you're not going to put me in a home like those white people kids do, you know? <laughs> yeah. Aging you know? in the United States is one of my biggest fears yes. because of that, because it's so individualist. Yeah. It's scary. <laughs> And all of that play, like, I feel like all of that plays into a lot of this healthism, right? Like you have to be strong enough 
healthy enough to work till you're 65 and you can retire. It's like, yeah, I don't want to be working at 65. (laughs) I really don't. And you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. bootstraps, Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. Because there's no one else for you. There's There's no one else out there to help you. No. And it's so crazy. Oh, and then, and then I think of like maternal health and how that affects like a lot of the stuff that I see in like, like the, just the, the baby world here in the mm-hmm. U.S. and oh, there's so much, y'all. It's yeah, it's so all much. connected, Delina. It's all. I, I don't. I can't. I. I feel like my brain knows that, but then I don't. You. You can help me find the science. <laughs> <laughs> find the like the beautiful mind formula. Yes. <laughs> all right. I want to talk about this idea of incrementalism, though, because a lot of times when I get into these conversations, like academically, intellectually, so stimulating. Emotionally, I feel despair. I feel like, what are we gonna do? Yep. And that is that is something that I think is really challenging for people who are becoming more aware of these forces on their individual health. So in past podcast episodes, we've given you a lot of tools to work on your individual health. Here, we're talking about the forces that may have led you to feel that way about yourself. You do a lot of this work. You know, what are some maybe like steps over the next five years you could see happening to improve healthism in our society or in our healthcare system. I mean, you can take it to whatever level you feel would make sense. Like what would it look like shorter term if we were to start to dismantle, maybe not perfectly get there. Cause this, this whole thing we're talking about, this is big, this is bigger than all of us. Right. What would it look like to start, I don't know, pushing back on it in our day-to-day lives? So my thoughts around healthism and, you know, how we work. So I think this is where I might differ, right. With some with some thought leaders and either the fat liberationist framework or some other kind of radical liberatory thought leaders in that for me, this concept of healthism, right? It is not a root cause, right? Mm -hmm. Healthism is just a belief system. It's a tool that is used to uphold all these root causes that keep us oppressed. So I personally think that divesting from healthism doesn't need to be as challenging as, you know, dismantling from systemic racism or from systemic fat phobia, right? I think we can do the work personally within ourselves to decouple our worth from our health status, right? Right. So me, I have a mental illness. I have a congenital disorder. No matter how skinny I am, no matter how much kale I eat or all this, I will never meet the Western definition of healthy but I am still worthy and valid, right? So I think we can start doing that work on an individual level. On a broader level, on a community level, right? Because we talked before that health is very much of a dynamic, right? Like it's not a fixed concept. It can vary, right? Cross-culturally, across different types of contexts, right? So this concept of reclaiming our health and well-being can happen within community, if we align ourselves with other people that are also invested in that journey to decouple Mm. their health from their worth. Right. Mm. So I think by building community, I think by engaging in just, I, I find education, I find learning, I feel I find dialogue to be so powerful and transformative. And so what I've been seeing in the shift, because I've really pivoted in my approach, it's been, it, 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 it'll be almost five years. And I have seen a shift on a, I don't know, on a, a systemic level, but at least within pretty large health and wellness spheres about what it means to reclaim, to shift this 
to shift this narrative. And, and I think, you know, for the most part, it's been beneficial because more people are talking about things like fat phobia. They're talking about things, you know, like white supremacy. They're talking about things like they're talking about things like ableism. So all these conversations, all these dialogues, reading books, being really being educated to be able to talk to someone in your community about this, I think sets the stage for transformative things to happen. A lot of the other part of my work when I'm not, you know, talking with people in my community or reading books happens on the policy level. Policy can be shifted on so many different tiers, right? Like not just federal policy level, like policy can occur, you know, within your own practice, within your own professional organization, within your own nonprofit organization, uh, within your own neighborhood, within your own town, within your own city, within your own state, right? Policies occur in so many different spaces. And so by shifting policies, starting small and then building their way, because I think that you do see policy views change at the top level when you start at the base, of, right? Like in the foundation. We forget um, that. So, yeah. So, so, so I think, you know, building a community, building a strong community through these different ways, engaging in dialogue, because that's a better way to organize um, and make shifts to advocate for policy changes and for bigger institutional changes. You're making me think of like even wellness policies inside organizations, like how much financial incentivization, days off, bonuses, tokening, you know, there's all these things that occur. That would be a very interesting thing. If anyone listening here, it has that kind of power. Like those wellness challenges, like, come on, like really, like you should be investing in people to be able to engage in their own health and wellness, in their own pursuit for health and wellness without these wellness challenges that can really, you know, be super exclusive. And, you know, they don't approach health and wellness with a lot of dignity. Like people are just competing to see who who could be the healthiest. Like that's not helpful for this narrative either. Competing for a $25 gift card. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, My sister, oh my gosh, she used to tell me about these (laughs) challenges and they'd be like, do you want to come in and talk at the challenge? I was like, hell no. Yeah, it's so wild. I had to run a lot of these challenges, (laughs) y'all. I've had to do this. And this is like insane to me. No, it just kind of like makes me think of like, just how like, I want to change, you know, in in my own world and and the people that work for me, like, I think it all starts with like companies, you know, also doing things like this, right? Like, I, I all, you know, Sabrina, Stephanie, Isabel, you know, all all the, the women that that work for me know that like, my goal is to have a company where they can have the ability to live a life and not work full time. Like we don't do 40 hours. Like you have a limited PTO. You can go do what you need to do and live your life. I know that you're doing your job, right? Like I want to be able to provide a livable wage and not have to like live, like work unlimited amounts of hours. Like I want you to be able to travel, have your life, have kids, take care of yourself. Like this is the company I wish I would have had, right? Absolutely. I was, and now I'm building my business and that's the company that I am aspiring to be. And little by little, I'm, I'm, I'm able to do that. But like, these are the changes that we can do sometimes at our own personal levels. Like if you have a company, if you have a say, if you can do something like that, like you can change that right? because there's so much more than just physical health. Like you said, like that mental health, that spiritual health yeah. and working 40 hours, we can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I just saw a meme today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I saw a meme today that was like abolish the five day work week. I have dishes to do. And I just looked at my sink and I was yep. 
<laughs> and laundry and errands, my least favorite thing, dropping off the newly package. So every much month. To do. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, what like what would it look like to divest from healthism in your own business practice company through culture and climate work, yeah. right? Building a culture and climate where the people that work there are able to thrive as whole people, whole people. right? And not just for you order, not just to pump out more products, pump out more profit, right? What does it look like to shift? I think that's a great way to challenge healthism. Or even some self-regulation. Like if it's 10 o'clock and something's making you anxious, maybe you don't slack someone about that at 10 o'clock at night. Maybe you put that in your anxiety journal and wait till the next day. (laughs) Anyone who has been on these connected tools, I used to work in a company like that our urgency, right? Like this is on my mind. Now it's your problem. Like, even if you don't own a company and you're not building a company, you will improve your health by learning to self-regulate those anxious feelings. Mm -hmm. And you will improve the health of the world around you. Like you can start by making a difference just in the way you act, which is empowering. Yeah. On a final note, my email signature says, I am a mom. I run a business and I'm on the East coast answering your message (laughs) after 5 p.m. Eastern. Exactly. See you tomorrow. And I don't work on the weekends. Boundaries are a great way to challenge healthism. I love that. Yes, I had to. You You are so amazing. I just love the way you have all this like Renaissance understanding from all these different viewpoints. Your ability to bring them all together for us was so valuable. I I can't thank you for enough of your time. Thank you. Can you tell our listeners where to find you um, if they're interested in following your work? Sure. Uh, I have a website. It is embodylib.com. I am on Instagram. Uh, my Instagram handle is the body lib advocate. It's the underscore body lib B O D Y L I B underscore advocate. I am on Twitter sometimes, but the best way to reach me is either through my website. You can email me and you can also look at upcoming events I have on my Instagram, but I also have a mailing list. So you you can join my mailing list where I'll send you my newsletter, upcoming speaking engagements, presentations. I do a lot of events with different universities, with uh, nonprofit organizations, um, companies, all about a variety of body liberation topics, in addition to one-on-one professional consulting and organizational consulting as well. So if you check out my, my website, you can get connected to all of that information is more and more and reach out to me if you ever want to connect. Amazing. Thanks so much for sharing your perspective. Take good care, everybody. We'll see ya. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. One of the first things that I do with clients is sit back and interview them to say, what does health mean to you? And I think in this episode, we saw how important that question really is, because if we don't do it, we'll always be at the service of what other people want for our health. So I hope this episode inspired you to maybe step back and think about what health means to you. And if you have that definition in hand and you're going, well, that sounds lovely, but I have no idea where to start. I want you to head over to my page, no.more.gilp. You can head straight to that link in bio and you can find the application for one-to-one coaching or check out other offers that are available now. When we work together, I'm going to show you how to take this step-by-step working toward the health behaviors that you so wish that you could have without all the food guilt and body shame. We thank you for being here and for being who you are. Peace, love, and break the diet cycle.